Any questions or comments from what we've presented so far? All right. You know, sometimes people uh, come in after one of these lectures and they, they look at a paper like this, especially the, the maintenance people at our center that clean up, and they'll look at that and say, what did you talk about? <laughs> Can you imagine walking in and seeing this? I said, well, it made sense as we went through it, but uh, I can see where it could be confusing now. So you have these handouts that have some information that you can continue to read through. The second page especially, the essential symptoms of codependency. I'll go through those really quickly, then I want to say a little something about family systems, and I think that will be enough for today. <clears throat> First symptom we say codependents are external referenced on other person or people. External referenced. That is uh, true of almost any addiction. Well, that's almost addiction in a nutshell. External referenced means that I'm looking outside of myself at someone or something else as the source of my happiness and unhappiness. That's really it in a nutshell. In other words, that person has the power to make me happy or unhappy. Not simply to affect my life, which I don't think we can be in a relationship and not be affected, but they make me okay or not okay. When, when they're mad at me, then I'm droop, down on the ground. When, when they're liking me and approving of me, then, oh, my self-esteem is high. When they criticize me, my self-esteem is low. You see what I'm saying? That's external referenced. That's a little different from being hurt by someone or disappointed if they let us down, but uh, that our whole self-esteem is determined by them, uh, that's quite a different matter. Therefore, symptom number two, they try to control the behavior of the other through approval seeking and people pleasing. If you make me okay or not okay, then I'm gonna do whatever I can to influence you to act toward me in such a way that I like. So I'm going to do the things you like. I'm going to avoid doing the things you don't like. And that's certainly part of loving someone, right? But here we're talking about a situation where I'll avoid doing what you don't like even when I should. Let's say confront you about something or uh, ask for some particular need I know you won't be happy about. I start denying myself even my legitimate needs in this relationship. So I start discounting myself. That is the ultimate consequence of codependency, is the loss of self. Not in the kingdom sense, where lose yourself that you might find yourself, you know, that Jesus says, you've lost the whole shebang here. There's nothing left. Codependents experience intimacy by discounting their own feelings and empathizing with the feelings of others. I think intimacy, someone once asked me, what is intimacy? And Because, you know, people talk about intimacy. Intimacy is when two people feel something together. How do you like that definition? Does that sound pretty good? Two people feel something together. Our community feels something together. Well, how do you experience intimacy with a person who is not interested in feeling with you. Well, you feel what they're feeling. 
And so that's what old Bill does. He focuses on what Sally is feeling and tries to feel what she's feeling. Now Sally's not particularly interested in feeling what Bill is feeling, okay? And the only way sometimes that Bill can feel what Sally is feeling is by discounting his own feelings. My feelings don't count, your feelings do. And we're feeling something together that way. Consequently, codependents can usually tell you what everybody else is feeling except themselves. And boy, did they nail me on that in, in group training. I could tell you what everybody was feeling. But when the therapist would say, just a simple statement on you, Phil, how are you feeling today? And I'd start to give some answer, oh, I'm feeling good. Good is not a feeling. Well, I'm feeling pretty good. You know, Joe here said that he got his raise. I didn't ask you how Joe felt. <laughs> okay. And I then, as a counselor, came to see many people. You'd ask them how they feel, and they'd tell you how someone else felt. So automatic. That's part of the whole addictive process. Point number four, this is all connected, a loss of healthy boundaries. <clears throat> I don't know what's mine and what's yours anymore. What's mine is yours and what's yours is mine and uh, there's no place where I leave off and you start. So this loss of healthy boundaries generally resulting from doing things for others that violate one's values and from accepting unacceptable behavior from others. Number five, frozen feelings, numbness with regard to one's own feelings. Codependents can watch a TV program and cry and cry and cry. When they think about their own life, they don't feel a thing. Or they may be depressed, because really we are having feelings. We just don't allow ourselves to experience them. And depression, there are different kinds of depression, but the most common kind is of erecting some kind of barrier within ourselves that prevents us from feeling our feelings. And it takes a lot of energy to keep our feelings out of conscious awareness. It takes so much energy to do that that we might not have enough energy left over to get out of bed or to get up and go to work or to do our work with any kind of enthusiasm because the depression is just sapping all our energy. Low self-esteem, the self is valued according to others' opinions. So how am I doing? It depends what you think. If you're like me today, then I'm fine. If you don't, well, I'm down in the dumps. Codependents may use martyr, victim, or messiah role to bolster their self-esteem. Victim role is one of the most serious uh, consequences, I think, and one of the most common ways. Because my self-esteem is so low, the only thread of self-esteem I can latch onto is, well, I must really have treasure in heaven. You know, after all, uh, who else could put up with what I put up with? And, uh, and we start seeing ourselves as a victim, you know, and we're going to carry this cross. And this is not, again, the kind of cross that the Lord Jesus asks us to carry. Uh, this is not the cross that transforms. This is the cross that gets us sicker. Sometimes religious talk, you can see, uh, can reinforce codependency if we're not careful about how we talk about some religious values. And in the book, Freedom from Codependency, uh, there's a little chapter on that, on 
how some religious slogans can play into the hands of codependency. It's better to give than to receive. Love means putting the needs of others before my own. Y'all ever hear that kind of stuff in, in, uh, in church? Now you have to watch out for how you apply it. Generalized anxiety related to the lack of control of one's life. Mental preoccupation, racing thoughts, inability to enjoy mental silence and serenity, which may be, as we were, some of us were talking at break, a springboard for obsessive-compulsive kinds of behaviors. Mental preoccupation. Lack of assertiveness. Inability to ask directly for one's true needs. Inability to confront unhealthy behavior in others. Okay, that's another consequence. And finally, narcissism. It might be a surprise to some people to say codependents are really narcissistic. One time I was giving a lecture on this and going over exactly this material for a group of people who were identified as codependents in, in recovery. That's why they came to the workshop. And <clears throat> they really took objection to this narcissism because they really fancied themselves as people who were givers and concerned about others, so much so that they had lost themselves. And as we can just, you know, thinking about those dynamics again, you see, when a codependent is enabling, whose welfare are they really concerned with? Why are we doing all this stuff? To help the other or to help ourselves? Well, maybe both, but the truth be told, all this giving and victim stuff is really uh, about getting what we want from the other. Here's how you can tell. In the absence of healthy, legitimate boundaries, codependency other people as for or against the self. That's narcissism, okay? Codependents imagine that people are thinking about them all the time. Um, you might find a codependent who, say, you're talking to someone, and when they walk in the room, you stop talking, and uh, they'll imagine that you must have been talking about them when they walked in the room and you stopped talking about them, like we're thinking about them all the time, right? That's narcissism, to imagine that we're thinking about this person <laughs> all the time, like we have nothing better to do. But in their mind, they're so much thinking about themselves all the time. Even while they're thinking about others, they're thinking about the other person in reference to how this person will hurt me or help me. And so who are they really thinking about in the last analysis? Do you see what I'm talking about? This is so sneaky and insidious. Love is concerned with the welfare of others, right? And so we have to think about others in love. But in codependency, we're thinking about their welfare in relation to our welfare and how what we do will affect their behavior toward me. All right, that's narcissism. Problems related to codependency is other addictions, neuroses and psychoses, and physical health problems. There's a whole lot of problems. Now, how common is this codependency? Well, it depends on who you read, okay? Uh, there's one writer, one of the, oh, the big names in the field of addiction and recovery literature, um, Sharon Wegscheider Cruz, who says that 97% of the people in our country are codependent. 
97% of our families are dysfunctional families. Um, well, you know, maybe so. But certainly we have to say that there are degrees of codependency. You know, there are stages of this, just as there are stages of alcoholism. There's early stage codependency is one thing, late stage is quite another. In late stage, you'll see all of these symptoms to a very, very marked degree to where the person is like totally out of touch with themselves, so totally focused on the other person, um, lost selfhood. And then you'll have the others, you know, who are into small amounts of people-pleasing and approval-seeking behavior, doing a little caretaking here and there, a little bit of preoccupation and anxiety. I think there's a lot of people at that level. Um, kind of enmeshed but having some kind of boundaries too, but not really sure what they are until somebody crosses them, and then not knowing how to react when that happens, there's a whole lot of that. Self-esteem very much affected by what other people think and how they act toward us. Um, pretty common, right? Well, one way to, to, to get at how common this is and uh, is to look at big part of where this comes from is to look at family systems. Um, be a little bit about that on some of these other pages. But I'll, I'll give a little background and, we, and then we can spend some time talking about it together. Well, the question, you know, naturally arises in reference to alcoholism. Uh, are, are some people more likely to become alcoholic than others? And we've already answered that and said yes. Uh, if there's alcoholism in one's family, then there could be the genetic factors that make one almost a sitting duck for alcoholism. Are there some people that are more likely to become codependent than others? And the answer again is yes. That's likely to happen in what we would call troubled families or dysfunctional families. And again, depending on who you read, there are a lot of those. Uh, again, 97% versus uh, who knows. I'll, put up here in a minute what I think we're looking at. Having said that, I, I do want to make it clear that this can happen to anyone who finds themselves in a, an important relationship where the other person starts to get unhealthy. When another person starts to get unhealthy and you want to stay in that relationship, but you haven't learned what Al-Anon teaches and, uh, well, what the whole recovery literature teaches, if you haven't learned how to do that, you're going to get sick. It's just that simple. So it can happen to anyone, and it does happen to, to even people from healthy families, you know, with uh, good education and pretty good self-esteem, but there's some skills that you need in order to keep yourself detached from unhealthiness. If you don't have those skills, then you won't recognize what's happening. It'll be so sneaky and so gradual, you go down the tube. You can turn it around, of course, but you might suffer a whole lot before that happens. Let's look at families in this country and, and see what the picture is here. Um, I think what we're looking at is, let's say, a bell-shaped curve. And on the left-hand side of this horizontal line, we put healthy families. And I'll talk about what that 
is a healthy family in a few minutes. And on this side, unhealthy. And on the vertical line, we'll put numbers. Okay? Probably what we're looking at is that bell-shaped curve. That you have one standard deviation on either side that's very healthy and one that's very unhealthy. I think that how many in here have had statistics, if you remember, that corresponds to something like three to five percent on either end would be, uh, I think, that would be within two standard deviations. Then you'd have this other situation here. So you would have maybe some 15 percent that are, oh, pretty unhealthy, but not terribly unhealthy, okay? And 15% right here who are, well, right, these would be healthier, these would be unhealthier, and then you'd have in the middle, um, oh, 50% of the families that are somewhat healthy, somewhat unhealthy. That's probably a more realistic picture of what we're looking at in families in this country. So you want to try to figure out where your family is. Where would you put your family on this bell-shaped curve, right? Well, think about that a minute. That might be fun for you to do. Think about that. Where would you put your family? The unhealthy family would have all those characteristics that I just went over about self-esteem and lack of assertiveness and feelings and all those kind of things. The healthy family would be the opposite of all of those. Basically, in a healthy family, you're free to be yourself and other people are free to be themselves. People can talk about feelings openly and you're not judged as a bad or good person for the way you feel. You're pretty much loved for who you are. You're not having to figure out what mom or dad's mood is so you can adjust yourself. That's a healthy family. This I put mine somewhere around here. Okay. It's not the healthiest and not the unhealthiest. It's more on the healthy side. We were loved for who we were. Uh, certainly free to leave home when the time came. Uh, I was the oldest of eight, so they weren't too worried about losing me. You know, there's a whole lot coming after me. Maybe it was different for that last one. I suspect it was. But still, there's some things we didn't learn about feelings, you know, and about... Uh, there was a judgment of sorts attached to some feelings. Like it really wasn't okay to be angry about some things, but it was okay to be angry about some other things. And there was a kind of a judgment about if you were angry about the wrong things, okay, then you were bad. And some of, some, it wasn't so much what I learned as what I didn't learn about how to get along in relationships that uh, hurt me in later life, especially in male-female romantic type relationships uh, where some codependency developed. So, I mean, even on the healthy side, you know, we're left with some vulnerability that can take its toll later on. Much more so on the unhealthy side. Okay? So that's what I think we're looking at in families. Now, I don't know too much about that 3%. Maybe their situation is different. But the rest of us, even those on the healthy side, have a few common problems 
to deal with that set us up for codependency. And that's what I'm going to go over now. Maybe that 3% doesn't even exist. Theoretically, it must, but that's statistics. You know, reality might not be that way. As Mark Twain said once, he says, there's three kinds of lies. He says, there's lies, there's damned lies, and there's statistics. <laughs> so you might remember that when you're considering polls, especially polls where people say that the majority of people believe this or that. All right. Uh, what, what sets us up for a lot of this codependency and addiction is uh, a very basic condition. Okay. It has to do with our uh, early experience of growth and development that everyone who comes into this world, comes into the world, we'd say in a developmental environment, and in this developmental environment, we're going to learn everything about what it means to be a human being. We're born knowing some things. We're conceived, rather, let's say, let's start even before being born. We're conceived with some kind of knowledge but not much. It's pretty instinctive kind of knowledge. Even when a baby is born, it, it knows how to suck, and it knows how to cry, and uh, maybe move a little bit, but that's not really coordinated consciously. But there's a potential in that mind to know and learn so many kinds of things about how to get along with people, about how to eat, how to walk, uh, how to do everything. It will learn from the environment. What we're most concerned about in this environment is how the environment, what, what are the messages it gives us about our worth as a human being. And that's where in everybody's developmental environment, and some much more so than others, we get uh, the experience of conditional love. Conditional love. As early as conception, this can be the atmosphere of our conception. Is, is there an openness and welcoming atmosphere for the birth of a child at conception? That's been the concern of the church in the whole humana vitae and birth control. I mean, this is, this is what the church is trying to safeguard that wherever there is a conception of a child, it be done with an open, loving, welcoming attitude. Or is this not something that is welcome? Now, as we know, there's many conceptions that are not only unwelcome, but discarded. This is a real anti-child kind of atmosphere in this culture. So even in the womb, we can say there, there is this conditional, loving, kind of uh, environment in which we grow up. Now, do you think that a, a developing human being knows that they are loved conditionally? How many of you think they do? Well, they don't have a rational intellect, right? I mean, they don't have a verbal thinking mind yet. But the early developing child has what you might call a body feeling intelligence. It knows but it doesn't know through thoughts and words. 
And if the truth be told, there's a whole lot about us that still knows that way, right? We don't know everything we know through thinking and concept. I mean, so the child can feel that. And, and we have gotten this quite clearly in the work that's been done with people in clinical hypnosis. Sometimes people will be depressed about something. And they'll try one counselor and they'll try another counselor. And nothing seems to work. So they'll, they'll finally be recommended to a, a hypnotist who will say, OK, I want you to get in touch with that feeling. And I'm going to put you in a little trance. And I'm going to ask you, when's the first time you ever felt that way? Okay. And so they do this. And what they start to report is experiences of feeling that way in the womb, of hearing their mother and father arguing about something. Uh, some have reported abortion attempts by their mother and their aunt. One, one outstanding case was of a man who would become suicidal on, like, let's say, August 10th. Every year, he'd become suicidal. He didn't know why. And finally, under clinical hypnosis, he reported a womb memory of his mother trying to abort him. That's the first time he felt suicidal. Okay. And he eventually confronted his mother with this information, and she denied it first. Then she broke down and cried and said, yeah, that's true. How could you know that? And uh, the truth is that there is a knowing that goes on in a fetus and even a, an infant. It's not the same kind of knowing that we have, but it is a kind of knowing, and I call it body feeling. So at a body feeling level, we know that we are loved not for who we are, but because we do the right things or we don't do the wrong things. Now, a little later, once we come into uh, the home and we're growing up with our parents and brothers and sisters, our grandparents, aunts and uncles, and then in the school and with friends and in the community, our knowing is more than body feeling. Then it becomes mental kind of knowing, intuitive kind of knowing. We develop other ways of knowing. We always have that body feeling. That's still very important. That's part of what we call the inner child. We talk about healing the inner child. We talk about that part of us. That is also the part that addicts are out of touch with, is the body feeling knowing. They're in their heads and their thoughts and their intuition and you know, going around and around and that stuff. But our environment uh, is communicating feedback to us on other levels, not just body feeling. So let's do that, evaluation. We don't know anything. We're going to learn from this environment. And part of what we're learning is about who we are as a person. What is our worth as a person? So the environment is communicating, especially on two levels. Who we are as a person, call that personhood. You want to call it personality, that's all right. And what we do. So I'm making a distinction here between two things, who we are and what we do. And we're constantly getting messages from the environment about that, who we are and what we do. We're not born knowing that. We learn that. One possibility would be affirmation, which would say, I like who you are, and I like what you do. And that's certainly one form of, of unconditional love. But the unique thing about affirmation is it keeps these separate. It says, I like 
who you are regardless of what you do. Okay? So it keeps it separate. I like who you are. How do we communicate that with the smile, with the hug, the words I love you? Generally with a warm accepting attitude that says I'm glad you're here. It's good to be here with you. How do we communicate about behavior? How do we evaluate behavior? You know how we do that. That's right or that's wrong. This is good or this is bad. Do this, don't do that. Well done, not well done, and so forth. And, and with affirmation, we're saying, well done, good job, thank you, I like that. So when a person gets a lot of affirmation, then they internalize that as, I'm really okay as a person, I know how to do some things. You might call that character. Uh, Sidney Simon called it Iolac. You remember that silly thing we do in schools all the time? I am lovable and capable. It's coming back. <laughs> You wear a little Iolac heart and you tear a piece off every time somebody's mean to you and at the end of the day you have a little thing left and uh, I never did that one but we were taught it. <laughs> okay. Now I'm going to show you the, where conditional love really breaks in is through this counterfeit thing called approval. Now it looks the same. Approval says I like who you are and I like what you do but it links them together. It says, who you are as a person is okay because you do the right things. And how does that happen? Well, part of it happens in the way we react to people. When they do the wrong things, somehow we communicate not just uh, a non-acceptance of their behavior, but a rejection of their personhood. And sometimes we even say that, bad boy, bad girl. Uh, well, that would be disapproval. Approval is, is the other side, though, is to say, uh, be a good boy and eat all your food. That's approval. That's an approval statement. How do I be a, a good boy? I eat all my food. Good girl, you cleaned your room. So we're commenting on the person's worth in relation to their behavior. The way you become a good boy or a big boy is by doing certain things. You see the distinction there? And here's where it can get really screwy with an unhealthy family is where you say, be a good girl and don't make mommy mad today. Now I want you to think about that for a minute. What, all of what that implies, that you're responsible for how she feels. And if she gets mad, it's your fault. And therefore, you're bad if she gets mad. And the one thing I can assure you is if she's saying things like that, she's going to get mad during the day whether you do anything or not. It can happen for any reason. It's got nothing to do with you. But you feel responsible for that and you judge yourself. And part of our growth process is not just body feeling intelligence again, but a mental intelligence. And part of that mental intelligence is the ability to evaluate our own behavior. After a while, the environment is not evaluating us, we're evaluating ourselves, right? We call that an internal parent, or some would call that a superego. There's all kinds of ways to talk about that. But we're approving ourselves and, and, uh, because we do the right things. The flip side of approval is wherever you have approval, you also have disapproval. And disapproval works like this. 
when I do the wrong thing, behavior-wise, then what kind of person am I? Can you figure that out? Of course, a bad person, right? Right. There's a linkage between these two. And so when you have these two going on, then all I have to do is tell you, oh, you, you messed up here. And automatically, you will judge yourself. You will say, oh, I'm bad, I'm stupid, I'm clumsy, I'm dumb, I'm irresponsible, okay? After a while, we judge ourselves. Of course, we are taught very well by the environment, which tells us that too, okay? Now, these are the two things that wound us mentally. Everybody, except, again, maybe that 3%, you know, I don't know about them. Maybe they just get affirmed, but I don't know what happens when they go to school because they're sure going to get this at school. And if they don't get it from their teacher, they'll sure get it from their friends. You think this goes on with kids? <laughs> That's about all they know, it looks like, sometimes. Of course, they've learned their lessons well. But the lesson here is, again, my worth as a person comes from doing the right things. Okay? That's the principle. Therefore, I am conditionally okay as a person. Therefore, my whole self-worth structure is very much conditioned by doing, conditioned to do the right things. And if I do the right things, then I will get approval. Do the right things, approval. Get approval, I'm okay. Right? Now there's one more possibility we need to put up here, and that is uh, what we would call confrontation, or discipline, if it's in the case of children, which says, I like you, but I don't like what you're doing. And we keep that separate. And in order to do that, you need a very specific kind of language. And I know you're all saying, that's what you talked about in the second part of Lessons in Loving, right? Yes, that's right. <laughs> that is the kind of language I'm talking about. A language that is, is behavior specific. That leaves the person, the personality, and the self out. We're not going to talk about the person. We're going to talk about what you do. How I feel about what you do. If I want you to do something else. Um, I want you to stop doing what you're doing. Uh, that's what we're talking about in confrontation. Or, or rather that language. Confrontation would be one example of that. <clears throat> this is pretty much, you know, what an unhealthy environment teaches. Approval and disapproval. And it's everywhere. Okay. On the first page of your handout, there's a list of family, community, and social system rules which promote codependency. I'm going to talk about those sort of as a, a way of uh, refining even more this demonstration about uh, the developmental environment and its influence on us. We say that there are some family situations that promote codependency and it's very much related to how we are taught about approval and disapproval. Now in what I call troubled families and others call dysfunctional families, you get disapproval for breaking these rules. These rules that Robert Subby is talking about in his book, Lost in the Shuffle. It's an excellent book. I really recommend it.
And when you keep these rules, you get approval. So you're learning from this kind of family how to get approval by according to these rules. How do you know about these rules? You know about them when you break them. When you break these rules, you get disapproved. You get labeled, judged, maybe spanked, certainly yelled at. Nowhere will you find these rules, in other words, written out and posted on the refrigerator. Uh, they're what we call covert rules. That means they're hidden. You learn about them when you break them. The first one, it's not okay to talk about problems, especially problems in relationships. Mom and dad had a fight last night, and I'm the child, and I ask them the next morning, what were you and dad fighting about last night? Don't ask me about that. That's none of your business. That's between your father and I. You're lucky we provide a house for you. We give you three meals a day, blah, 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 blah. all that. So you learn right away, don't talk about that. That won't do any good. Nosy, ungrateful kid. Why does dad drink like that? What are you talking about? Your father's a very good man. And blah, 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 blah. all that again. You get that. So you can't talk about that, you see? When you do, you get disapproved. Feelings should not be expressed openly, especially uh, painful feelings. Hurt, fear, anger, loneliness. It's okay to have happy feelings. You'll see that one later on. The feelings are expressed indirectly. Communication is best if indirect, with one person acting a messenger as a messenger between two others. This is called triangulation. So I have a problem with dad and I'll go and ask mom to tell dad I'm sorry for what I said last night. And she'll go tell him and he'll say, well, tell him that's all right. He still has to cut the grass for the next two months. So, okay, she'll come and tell me. We can be sitting in the same room sometimes and this will happen. People don't talk directly to each other. Maybe you start to see that some of this, these rules come into the workplace too, huh? Right. Unreasonable expectations. Always be happy, always be strong, always be perfect. And when you're not, of course, woe are you. Responsibility for others' feelings. Again, uh, be a good girl and don't make mommy mad today. Or make us proud. We learn in this family that we're responsible for the way other people feel. And that is really the beginning of what we call those enmeshed relationships where I'm not sure where my life ends and your life begins. It's, it's confusing. It's like we're emotional Siamese twins. And in this family, it can be Siamese quintuplets where we're all connected emotionally and no separation and carrying each other around. <clears throat> Don't be selfish, which means in such families, even legitimate self-love. Mom, I'd like to go to a movie this afternoon with my friend. Well, how can you do such a selfish thing like that with your daddy sick in bed? I just want to go to a movie. It's selfish, right? Selfishness is anything you want to do for yourself, even if it doesn't hurt another person or it doesn't hurt you. It's selfish. Do as I say, not as I do. If that is not said, and it will be said in so many words, sometimes it is certainly modeled. Don't you ever curse when you're angry. And then in the next hour or so, 
you'll hear everything you ever want to hear. <laughs> right? Okay. It's not okay to play or to be playful. It's too noisy when you try to play. And play, of course, is almost the essence of uh, childhood behavior, isn't it? I mean, what do children do most and most naturally? Play is probably the healthiest context for learning, even as adults. To be playing at what we do in some way, uh, that it could be fun in some way, uh, is the best way to learn. But not in these families. Don't rock the boat means uh, peace at any price. Don't upset other people. Don't make waves. Uh, we learned that, and how do we learn it? When we rock the boat and make waves, we get blasted again. Well, even if you have one or two of these rules operating every now and then, you can really be a sitting duck almost again for codependency. So as a result of these rules, which are part of these dynamics of approval and disapproval, you get approval for keeping these sick rules. You get disapproval for breaking them. People have to learn to cope. Inside of themselves, they're feeling some kind of guilt, some kind of shame. And then, by the way, there's a difference between those two feelings. Shame is a, a, a feeling that says, I messed up, I did wrong. You might say that shame would, I mean, guilt would be the feeling we get when we're confronted. My behavior's wrong and it's hurt another. I feel guilty about that. That's good. I, I think people need to feel guilty. Don't you? I mean, I've met some people who don't feel guilty about doing terrible things. And we call them sociopaths. So, I mean, without guilt, uh, you can do just anything you want, right? It's a kind of a natural uh, internal restriction against unsocial behavior is guilt. But shame is different. Shame is not only that I've done wrong, it's that I'm no good. Shame carries a judgment of the self with it. I'm a mistake, not just my behavior. I'm a mistake. And so, you know, this is what everybody's got going on inside. This is the wounded part of our nature. And this is one way in which you might even understand that old teaching on original sin in some way, that original sin is not so much a stain on the soul that baptism erases. That would not be, maybe we were taught that as a, as a child, but it's a condition we're born into, a condition that started with the first parents, that since they, they broke from their, their perfect union with God, then everybody who's come into the world since then has come into the world in an environment of conditional love. That's the consequence of it. And we're wounded almost at conception 